Okay, is everybody ready? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time to read your word together and to discuss it and study it. And uh, such a blessing to have uh, the only source of divine revelation that you've given to this world uh, in its entirety, in our own language. And uh, what a blessing to be able to study it together and to read it together. And we pray that our hearts would rejoice as we look at um, John 20 and as far as we can get in this chapter or in the next chapter. And we just thank you for giving this gospel to us, the gospel of John, and the wonderful promises that it reveals to us, the wonderful teaching that it gives to us. And we thank you for showing your salvation to us in Jesus Christ, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Come on in. So did you just run all the way here? <laughs> okay, we're on John chapter 20, um, verse 1 of John 20. So just to kind of recap, um, John 19 is the, the scourging, crucifixion of Jesus, his death. And then his burial in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb there. And that's where that uh, chapter ends. And then now we're in uh, John 20, verse 1. Now the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved And said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So when she gets there, Mary Magdalene, of course, what what do we know about her? What's her story? She had been demon possessed. She She was a prostitute. Okay, so she's she's the first one there, you know, early in the morning. And she sees that the the stone has been taken away from the tomb. And as soon as she sees that she runs to tell Simon Peter what? Somebody took him. She's not thinking he rose from the dead, right? She doesn't think that yet. So she gets there. So picture that. She gets there. She sees the stone's gone. She must have noticed it was empty. And then she runs and tells Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved. There in verse 2. They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they have laid him. Okay, so her assumption is he's still dead. Somebody just took him out of there. And she's not sure who raided the tomb or why, but her assumption is that he's just been relocated somewhere. So verse 3, Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. Okay, so John and Peter immediately are like, okay, well, let's go, let's go see where he is. Let's go, let's go see what happened. So verse 4, so they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. Okay, it's interesting because it looks like they, I mean, look at the end of verse 3. They were going to the tomb, but then something happens and they suddenly start running. 
And it's funny to, to read commentators are kind of like speculating as to why, why, was, why were they coming to the tomb and then all of a sudden they're, they're running to it. Um, they must be thinking, I mean, you can speculate like a lot about why they would suddenly start running, but obviously we know that um, John was a little bit faster than Peter. So um, John gets there first, verse 5, and he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Okay, so picture, I mean, isn't this like just incredible high drama? So here they are, they come to the tomb, and uh, John is just looking in, and he sees, he sees the linen cloths that Jesus had been wrapped up in. They're just laying there on probably a stone slab that was on the one side of the tomb that was probably kind of like a cave, and he just sees it sitting there, verse 6. And Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. And he saw the linen cloths lying there. And so John's there at the entrance, looking in, but Peter, what does Peter do? He just walks right in there. Okay, which is like true to form, you know, true to his personality. He just stomps right in there, like, what, what's going on in here? And it says they both see the linen cloths lying there. In verse 7, and the handkerchief... Or, or the headband that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Yeah, have y'all, y'all ever heard of the, the Shroud of Turin? Okay. This pretty much refused. The Shroud of Turin was um, a, a winding sheet that was, it looks like someone had been crucified in. It was found, I, I can't remember when it was found, but... For the longest time, people thought it was actually the, the linens that Jesus was, was wrapped up in. But we know it's not. Why? That, but, but also, the, yeah, the headpiece was separate from the body piece. Okay, I mean, look, look at verse um, 7. The handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths. And the shroud of turn is one big piece together. Okay, but for the longest time, it was, a, it was an object of like Catholic devotion, and there were like blood stains on it. It was someone that had been crucified, and you can see the imprints of where this individual had been crucified. And they were thinking, wow, that's actually you know, blood stain from, from Jesus. And uh, I actually saw an interview once where a, a Catholic priest named Malachi Martin uh, made the comment that cloning technology was going to be used on the blood and they were going to bring about the second coming on accident. <laughs> yeah. Obviously that ain't going to happen. Okay. <clears throat> All right. Verse eight. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also. So John eventually goes in with him and he saw and believed. Okay. What, what do you think that means? Yeah. John's like, he's alive. Yeah. He's, like he told us. He's alive from the dead, like he told us. Okay? So he saw and believed. Verse 9. For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. Okay? Now, what do you think that is referring to? They didn't know the scripture, meaning not, not that they didn't know of its existence, but they didn't understand it properly yet, that he must rise from the dead. Where is that taught in the Old Testament that the Messiah or the Holy One would, would rise again from the dead? Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is one of them. 
Psalm okay. 22. Psalm 22. Mm-hmm. Psalm, Psalm 16, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. Can you remember that? Okay, so the notion that the Messiah, the, the, the chief cornerstone was going to be rejected and killed, but then continue to minister somehow, that's a, a very much a part of Old Testament prophetic revelation about who Jesus was. So they didn't understand that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Because what were they still thinking in terms of at this point, as far as their understanding of who Jesus was and what he was going to do? Yeah. They thought like everybody else, pretty much, that this is going to be a political deliverer who's going to resurrect the armies of Israel, and we're going to, we're going to overthrow Rome and, and resurrect the glory days of David and Solomon and everything else. Okay. So I love how nonchalant, you see verse 10? Then the disciples went away again to their own houses. So they're like, huh. It's just like, huh, I don't know, let's just go home. So they go back home to their houses. Okay, now, obviously, so so picture the sequence of events here. Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb, it's empty. She runs back and tells Peter and John, they've, they've moved the body of Jesus somewhere, we don't know where they've put him. They run to the tomb, she must have been following them. And so they get there and see what's going on there. John believes, you know, a miracle. He, he believes. Peter probably isn't really sure, but they end up going back to their houses. But Mary Magdalene is kind of following behind him. She shows up again. You see verse 11? So she's back where they were, but they're gone now. <clears throat> verse 11. But Mary stood outside <clears throat> by the tomb, weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. Isn't that amazing? So she goes down in there. Now notice the angels weren't there when Peter and John went in there. So they must have showed up after Peter and John left because Mary Magdalene is kind of following them back to the tomb. But when she gets there, there's two angels in there. One sitting at the head, probably on that stone slab there, and one at the feet, and they're just sitting there. Verse 13, and they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now, everything in me wants to say, like, wonders why she doesn't say, who are you guys? And when did you get in here? And why are you sitting there? But she doesn't. She, they took away the, my Lord. I don't know where they have laid him. Now what they say to her, why are you weeping? What, is, what are they implying there to her? Yeah, there's no, they have no reason to be weeping. She'd be rejoicing. Yeah. But she didn't know that. She doesn't know it yet. She doesn't understand that yet. But she tells them. She tells the angels, well, somebody took him out of here. Somebody took him, I don't know where they, where they put him. Because remember, why did they go to the tomb? What were they there to do? What did they want to do? Yeah, they wanted to put more spices on him to, to prevent you know, the stench and everything else. Verse 14. Now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Okay, so the angels say that to, that, to her. She says, you know, why, why are you weeping? Because they've taken away my Lord. I don't know where they've put him. But then she turns around from the tomb, and Jesus is standing right there. 
but she doesn't know that it's him yet. And Jesus says to her, verse 15, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, teacher. And picture that moment there. Yeah, she thinks he's the gardener. Isn't that amazing? And she turns around, she doesn't realize it, but then he, he says her name. You know, and he obviously was so special to her because of everything that he had done in, in her life. You know, picture her. What, what a story, you know, a prostitute who was demon-possessed. I mean, could you, could you really get any lower uh, in terms of the, the degradation of your life? But here, she's really, really the, the first eyewitness of his resurrection, of, of the resurrected Lord Jesus. He appears to a, uh, a woman who was uh, formerly a prostitute who had been possessed by seven demons. <clears throat> and he says, Mary. And so she, uh, Hendrickson and Kistemacher said that the tone of his voice must have been what alerted her that this is him. Because even looking at him, um, it's not that, it, it doesn't seem here that her eyes were prevented from, under, from recognizing him like, they were, like the disciples on the road to Emmaus were. Remember it says that they were prevented from, from recognizing him. Here it just seems like her, she still is so not, just can't believe he's alive because she knew he was dead. But when he says her name, the tone of his voice and the, the love that he had for her, that alerted her, this is actually him. And so she cries out, you know, Rabboni, which is to say teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father and to my God and your God. Okay, several things here. Verse 17, when he says, don't cling to me, a, a lot of folks, I think, have mistakenly think that he's saying here, don't touch me. Um, I think that's probably not what he's saying. Because Why do we know that? He was not um, averse to people touching him, was he? He actually told people to do that later. Because remember, when he appears to the disciples in Luke's gospel, even when he's standing there, what do we know about the disciples? They still don't believe it. It says in the passage, they think he's a ghost. In fact, I think, isn't it the word phantasma? They think he's actually a ghost, the Greek word phantasma. I can't recall. I, I think there's actually that. They actually thought he was a ghost. And he says, it's me. Look at me and see. He says, a, a spirit or a ghost doesn't have flesh and bones like you see I have. And, it, and it's almost like he can see in their eyes, they still don't believe it's really him. But then what does he ask for then? Got anything to eat? Like, watch. And he sits there and eats in front of them. Like, it's really me. I mean, can you, doesn't that just breathe real history? You know they wouldn't believe, I wouldn't believe it. I mean, if someone, if someone died and you saw them die, and they're standing there talking, I mean, everything in you would just be like, there's no way this is actually happening. Okay? So when he says, don't cling to me, I think uh, the commentators are right to point out, really, he's saying, don't, don't think I'm going to be here for, for too much longer. Yeah, I got to appear to a lot of people over the next 40 days or so, but I'm ascending, I'm leaving, I'm going to my father and to your father. But notice what he says at, um, at midstream there, but go to my brethren. 
See what he calls his disciples, my brethren. Their commentators point out that's significant because earlier he he told them, "You guys are my friends," but even here he's even promoted them even higher. You guys are my brothers. You guys are my brethren. Okay, and we always, as Christians, we need to think Jesus is our older brother. Really, he's our older brother in the family of God. Now he's the Son of God by nature. We are sons and daughters of God by what? Adoption. Okay, and yet we're still children of God together. So he says, go tell my brethren and say to them, he, he sends Mary, go tell them that you saw me. I'm ascending to my father and your father and to my God and your God. So verse 18, Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. And I would love to see a, you know, a video of their faces while she's relating this to them. Um, I think they probably really struggled to believe her. But verse 19, Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. Now, how many of you have heard that what this means is that our resurrection bodies can like pass through walls and dematerialize and go through objects and then rematerialize on the other side. Have you guys ever heard that kind of thing from this? <clears throat> it really doesn't say that. And when, I, when Guy Waters, the guy that taught Johannine literature when I was in seminary, I kept thinking like he went verse by verse through the whole gospel of John. That's what he did. It took like 71 pages of notes on my, and I was just really looking forward to him <coughs> Um, getting to this verse here. I wanted to see how he would explain it. And he says, guys, there is no end of the ink that has been spilled regarding did Jesus pass through the wall? Did he like beam himself in there? And water, water says, guys, they probably just opened the door and let him in. He said that the reason it's emphasized that the doors were shut, it tells you why that's emphasized. You see it? Yeah, they were afraid. They were afraid for fear of the Jews. They were, they were afraid of being associated with Jesus because he'd just been crucified. So there's really no need to speculate about, you know, can our, our bodies... I remember hearing from uh, lecturers when I was younger, uh, yeah, our bodies can move at the speed of thought. So if you think you want to be somewhere in, the, in your resurrection body, you can instantly appear over there. I remember as a kid going, wow, that's really cool. Like, instantly, I want to go see the moons of Jupiter. Boom, I'm there, you know? And I don't need a spacesuit because it's, you know, you don't die in the, in the new heavens and new earth. That's true. God, God can beam people. Um, just like, yeah, Philip in the Ethiopian eunuch, remember that? Just, he just appeared. So, and it's pretty, pretty amazing stuff. But I think Philip was probably as surprised by that as the Ethiopian eunuch was. He didn't teleport himself there, but I don't know. But there's a lot of speculation about that. Henderson and Kissmacher kind of go into a lot of different ideas that are there. But I think Waters' explanation of that, although it was rather anticlimactic when I was in seminary, I was like, yeah, that probably makes more sense. They probably, they probably just let him in. <clears throat> so he stood in the midst of them and said to them, verse 19 there, peace be with you. Now, why would that be such an encouraging greeting in these moments for these guys? Yeah, what was that? They're terrified. Okay? I mean, their leader had just been crucified, and 
You know, Peter had denied, remember Peter denied Jesus because he was afraid of being arrested and being, you know, taken off and um, getting in big trouble himself. And they were really scared that they were going to get in trouble too. But he says, peace be with you. Verse 20, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Okay, so he shows them, this is, this is me. And we know that the, the scars from the crucifixion and from the spear thrust, they're still there. And um, do you all think, because I, I, I do think this, but I, I'm curious. Do you guys think that he'll still have the scars when we see him? I do. do okay. Because people have asked, well, do we, will we still have the scars from our, our own lives where if we had issues? I don't think we will. I think that he does because they were the, they were the effects of the curse. Isn't, I've always thought that's part of the bruising of the, the heel of the seed of the woman. I mean, he, he's going to carry that for eternity. But those scars are also victory. That's right. They're healed, but they're, you still see the effects of what it costs for us to be able to be in heaven. Um, but it's glorious stuff to think about. I love, this is, as I was reading through this in preparation for this, I was just thinking, he showed, look at verse 20 and meditate on it. When he had said this, when he said, peace be with you, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Like, that's justification by faith alone. Like, here it is. Here's, I did all this for you. You guys had no role in this at all. None. I've done this. I've destroyed death. I've conquered it. I actually died there. And his soul departed. He was a, a lifeless corpse, just like all of us will be when we die. But his soul was reunited with his body, and death has been conquered now. And I love that he shows them. This is, you know, look, this is me. And he shows them the spear thrust from where the soldiers uh, thrust him in the side. Verse 21, so Jesus said to them, again, peace to you. Same thing. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Okay, so he's, he's giving them a special endowment of the Holy Spirit here. And they are going to have the authority, just as all ministers of the gospel have the authority, to pronounce that people's sins are forgiven. Now, here's a, here's a good church polity question. What is the nature of church authority? What do I, as a pastor, have the authority to do? Can I forgive your sins? Okay, God help you if you're dependent on me for that. Okay. What, what is that? Ministerial and declarative. All I can do is tell you what scripture says. So, there's a great story of a pastor. There was a guy that... Um, started showing up at his church and he was preaching on Romans 1 and the giving over of mankind to every kind of evil and this guy was an abortion doctor and he, and he um, came to church and uh, heard a couple sermons about God's judgment and God's wrath and he made an appointment to go talk to the pastor <clears throat> and he sat in this pastor's office and he said, I want, he said I, I've done more than 10,000 abortions myself and the only thing I know for sure is I'm going straight to hell. Can you help me? And the pastor said, no. And just let it sit there for a while. <laughs> and he said, but I know someone who can. And then he went back and grabbed a little copy of the Gospel of John and said, read that. And he came to know Christ, repented of all that, 
and was baptized in his church. But I love that story because that's true. I can't help you, but I can point you to someone that can. Remember our, our high priest, the Lord Jesus, his high priestly prayer? We point people to Jesus because he's the one that can save them. He's the only one that can help them. All we can do is, is declare that. And that's really what um, verse 23 is saying. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Meaning we declare that someone's sins are forgiven. We admit them to the Lord's table, admit them to the church. Um, or if they're not forgiven, if they are not true believers, we, um, we retain those sins in a sense. We, we don't proclaim that they are forgiven by the finished work of Christ. Okay, um, Verse 24, now Thomas called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, we have seen the Lord. So he said to them, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Don't you like this guy? <laughs> it's like, what, you, you guys, your eyewitness testimony doesn't mean anything to me. If I, unless I actually touch those scars, I'm not going to believe this. And verse 26, after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut and stood in the midst and said, and there again, they probably just let him in and said, peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands, reach your hand here, put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. <clears throat> Now, a lot of people have asked the question, did, did he actually touch him? Because it doesn't say that he did. But the, the commentators that I've looked at said, he probably did because if Jesus tells you to do something, you just do it, right? So he probably did. And then what is his response? Verse 28, and Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. What, what's significant about that phrase there? Uh-huh. Full deity of Christ. The full deity of Christ. These are divine designations. He calls him there, my Lord. That's the term kurios. Kurios is the uh, translation in the Greek Old Testament for Yahweh. He just basically called him my, my Jehovah, my God. Okay, so he, he is identifying him as the God of Israel. Remember, Thomas is a monotheistic Jew. Okay? He is a, in the strictest sense of that word, believes there's only one true God. And when he is doing this, he's worshiping Jesus as my Lord and my God. He recognizes that. Okay? You see why Christians in, in the, those early centuries, when they hammered out the doctrine of the Trinity, they could see that clearly there's, there's one God, but there's clearly these three divine persons that are co-equal, co-eternal, co-powerful, that share the one undivided being of, of God. Okay? So my Lord and my God. <laughs> that's a devastating path. How does a Jehovah's Witness answer this? How could they possibly come up? You know what I've actually heard them say? Well, he got so scared he was cussing. Oh, my Lord, my God. Yeah. <laughs> and it's been pointed out, if he had done that, he would have received a rather savage rebuke from Jesus as a rabbi. Okay? That's not what he's doing. He's giving these divine titles to him. You see the 
level of desperation there. Okay. My Lord and my God. The Roman Catholics use that. <clears throat> Excuse me. But when they receive communion, you're, you're taught. That's what you're to say when they put bread in your hand or bread in your mouth. My Lord and my God. Wow. That's why our confession says that um, the doctrine known as transubstantiation has been the source of manifold idolatry, yea, superstition. Yeah. Thomas kind of gets a bad rap. Doubting Thomas. Yeah. The rest of them didn't believe till they saw him either. That's true. They didn't. Yeah, because Jesus, he wasn't with them when they when they appeared before, so you can't be too hard on him. But you also find yourself wondering about their history. How's that? He was so suspicious of what they said. Yeah. Yeah. They probably they yeah. Peter had denied Jesus. They had all scattered. Judas, they thought Judas was a good guy. He turned out to be not a good guy, so yeah, sure. <clears throat> okay, verse 29. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I like that, that verse there, um, to share that verse with people who tell me they've had visions of Jesus. Or Have you heard of this person who had a vision of Jesus? I'm like, Jesus said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I don't need to have a vision of Jesus. I, I, everything I need to know about Jesus, I've already got in my Bible right here. And so I have the clearest vision of him I can possibly have if I know the text of Scripture. So I don't need anything like that. Okay, verse 30. And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Now you would think, and a lot of gospel commentators point out, you'd think that'd be where the gospel ends, right? It looks like a real good spot to end. And yet there's this one more chapter you know, tacked onto the end here, and, and it's really treated usually separately. I mean, it's part of John's gospel, but it's treated as kind of its own little, little entity. Because remember, the prologue of John's gospel is John 1, 1 through 18. John 1, 19 through the end of chapter 12 is the book of signs. Remember that? The great miracles that Jesus did and the discourses associated with them. And then you have the upper room discourse. What is the upper room discourse? John 13. What is John 13 about? That's where Jesus does what for his disciples? And then John 14, 15, and 16. You want to know about the ministry of who? The Holy Spirit. You go to John 14, 15, and 16. Okay, and then John 17 is what? The, the high priestly prayer, the great high priestly prayer where Jesus prays for all future believers, he prays for himself, he prays for his disciples, and prays that, that they would be with him where he is. I love that, verse 24. I, I pray for them that they may be with me where I am and behold my glory. I, mean, I think Jesus makes a prayer request to his Father after he completes that perfect work. That's going to happen. That will happen. They will be with me where I am and behold my glory. Just like he said in, in John 14, don't be troubled. Um, I, I'm departing, yes, but I'm, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And I'm not going to leave you in this, this sin-cursed, fallen world that's all messed up with all your tears and heartache. I'm going to come and get you and bring you to that place. So that's why John 14, 1 through 3 is like one of the, one of the most beloved passages of Scripture uh, where he says that, in my Father's house are many mansions, and if it were not so, I would have, I would have told you. Okay, so here we get John 21, and let's see if we can figure out why this is here. 
Um, as I was reading through uh, Hendrickson and Kistamar, they list like 12 reasons that people have given for why this is here. So I want to see what, what we think. What, after going through this chapter, why is this here? Verse, verse 1 of chapter 21. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And in this way, he showed himself. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathan Ael of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, the two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, we are going with you also. They went out and immediately got into the boat. And that night they caught nothing. What does this remind you of? Yeah. The first time Peter ever met Jesus. What have they been doing all night long? How much have they caught? Nothing. Zip, nothing. Zip. Okay, verse 4. But when the morning now had come, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Then Jesus said to them, Children, have you any food? They answered him, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast, and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. So remember when... Um, Simon Peter and Andrew they, they come back to the shore in the Sea of Galilee and he says go out one more time and remember what Peter says to him we've been doing this all night long they haven't caught a thing but then he kind of but because you said it we'll, we'll do it so they go out there and they catch so much that they actually start to sink two boats remember what is Peter's response when he gets back to the shore what does he tell Jesus depart from me for I am a sinful man and what does Jesus say? It's so iconic. What does he say to him? From now on, you will catch men. And look at verse 7. Therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had removed it, and plunged into the sea. So, and that, there, there it is again, his kind of impetuous, just like, pedal to the metal, put your foot in your mouth, and then ask questions later kind of attitude. So John, of course, is probably the responsible one. He's like rowing, rowing the boat with some of the fish back to the shore. And Peter, Peter's like, does, does, the, uh, does the forest gump just, you know, jumps right into the water. Verse 8. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from land, but about 200 cubits, dragging the net with fish. Then as soon as they had come to land, they saw a fire of coals there and fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have just caught. Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to land full of large fish, 153. And, and by the way, um, when, when Guy Waters was lecturing on this, He's like, guys, you would not believe how much has been written about that number. <laughs> but it's probably just how many they caught. <laughs> There's no significance to it. There's no numerology here. There's no code that you've got to break or something. Oh, allegorical school. Seriously, yeah. I've heard people say that that's how many nations. But we're way past that. How many what? Nations how many world. nations are in the world? 153. Well, we that now. Yeah. So anytime people make a statement like that. Yeah. 
You just got to be careful. I always encourage people, like when you do Bible study, study what the Bible actually says and don't speculate about what it doesn't say. Like all the scenarios, I mean, when you have children, you get pitched with every conceivable scenario. What if Adam had done this? What if, what if Adam dug a hole under like, and went to the tree of life and like, got a, a piece of it that way or something? It's like, but, okay, don't worry about it. What if the cherubim fell asleep and they snuck around him or something? It's like, you know. Okay, look at verse um, um, 11, or verse 12. Jesus said to them, come and eat breakfast. Yet none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord. Now, some commentators, and I've heard others um, point out, this is one of the most encouraging, kind of just joyful, amazing, remarkable passages in, in Scripture, because here you have Jesus resurrected, and he's just enjoying his embodied existence, having breakfast with his disciples, like hanging out with them. Isn't that amazing to you? That he just wanted to hang out with them and... Let's have breakfast. And so what an, what an amazing moment that must have been. And that must have stuck with them forever. Remember when we had fish? Caught 153 fish on the shore with Jesus that day? Remember how you jumped in the water and exclaimed over there? Like, what an amazing moment. Verse 13. Jesus then came and took the bread and gave it to them. And likewise the fish. <laughs> this is now the third time Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Okay, so remember, they knew he was alive. And all of these disciples, all, all 12 of them, eventually, after um, Judas is eventually replaced with who? What's the guy's name? Matthias. Matthias was also an eyewitness, one of the eyewitnesses of the resurrection. But they all go out, and they, this is the thing to, to remember that's so unique about the Christian faith, is they went out and said, we are eyewitnesses that God sent his son into the world he did die, he was buried, and we are eyewitnesses that he is alive. And he, is a, he has set a date that the whole world is going to be judged, and forgiveness of sins is found only by faith in him. And you can't be justified by the law of Moses. You need to, to discard that way of salvation, because it never would have worked anyway, and you need to cast yourself on the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. And they claimed we're eyewitnesses of this. This actually happened. We saw it. We saw him. Okay. All right. Verse 15. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. Verse 17, he said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Why do you think he asked him that three times? He denied him three times, okay? And this has nothing to do with um, Petrine primacy or the papacy or anything like that. This is a favorite passage of the Roman Catholic Church, as if this has something to do with successors in Italy, which would have been real, real far away from where they were here, uh, as if the city of Rome was even in, in view here. He asked him three times to, if you love me because he denied him three times. And so he's restoring him here. He's restoring him. 
because Peter, as, as flawed of a man as he was, he was also uh, a man with incredible passion and talents, and he, he had a great potential. But he was constantly in need of special pastoral care from Jesus, and Jesus was constantly giving that to him because he loved him. Jesus really loved him. And, you know, as much as Peter failed, um, and he would go on to make even, you know, made more mistakes too. What, what's something else we know Peter did wrong? That's right. He withdrew from the table, eating with Gentiles when he knew better. And Paul said, you're, you are destroying the gospel by doing that, Peter, because you're making it look like these people have to keep these Jewish laws to be right with God. But we know that justification is by faith and not by works of law. And so he, Paul lays into him about that. And of course, Peter, thankfully, had the humility to be corrected. And he agreed with him. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That was where he was knuckling into that pressure. <clears throat> okay, look at verse 18. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. Verse 19. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Now, what do we know about Peter, at least from the historical sources that are available to us? How did he die? He was crucified upside down. And that's from um, Eusebius of Caesarea's Ecclesiastical History of the Church. It was written in 268 AD. It's actually one of the main, one of the main sources for a lot of what happened before that. And Eusebius chronicles the ten successive Roman emperors, beginning with Nero, that persecuted uh, Christians, and it's pretty brutal stuff. In fact, the Ecclesiastical History of the Church by Eusebius, written in 268 AD, is one of the most one of the most painful books to read that I have ever read. We had to read it when I took Church History One. I read that book and repented again and again for ever complaining about anything in my life. Like the way, like I'm not even comfortable telling you some of the things that were done to Christian people, but Peter was going to be crucified, and he stopped them and told them, I'm not worthy to die in the same posture. And so they, they hung him up upside down. And you just think, man, that was... And yet Jesus is telling him here that that's going to happen. You will stretch out your hands, and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. And this he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. Isn't that an amazing way of putting that? I'm like, Lord, I, I want to glorify you, but can it be in a different way than that? And yet, Peter and the other uh, disciples, I mean, every one of them was martyred. Every one of them was tortured, except um, all of them died from that, except one. Y'all, have y'all ever heard that story? John, the Apostle John. That from what Eusebius says, he was actually boiled in oil and survived it. And then wrote the book of Revelation later when he was exiled on the Isle of Patmos. But the book of Revelation is the, the, is the Lord Jesus letting John know and letting those early churches know, the seven churches there know the ways that you guys have been brutalized and persecuted by the Romans and the Jews. Don't worry about it. I'm about to take care of them. And that's exactly what happened in AD 70. That's what God did. He brought judgment against them and eventually um, really... Brings just horrendous judgment against the, the people of Israel for 
not only rejecting the Lord Jesus, but also for the persecution that they brought against the Christians. Of course, who, who's the main opponent of Christianity in the book of Acts? Who's following them around everywhere, persecuting them? The Jews, the Jews are. Okay, the Jews wanted to kill Paul. They plot to kill Paul. They, you know, beat them up and threatened them. And, you know, you can't preach in the name of Jesus. And they were following them, causing riots from different cities. And remember, Jesus told them that was going to happen. They're going to follow you from city to city and everything else. Okay. All right. Um, look at verse 20. Then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following who also had leaned on his breast at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, but Lord, what about this man? He's like, let's, let's get a prediction on all of us. Like, you know, you told me what's going to happen to me. What about, what about him? And I love his, his answer, verse 22. Jesus said to him, if I will that he remains till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Then the saying went out among the brethren that this disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die. But if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? Isn't that interesting? He's correcting already a, a legend or a myth that John was never going to die. Okay. Verse 24. This is the disciple who testifies of these things and wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amen. Okay. So what do you guys think chapter 21 is there? What are your thoughts about it? Well, in chapter 20, he says, um, down here, 21, peace be to you, just as the Father sent me, I also send you. So mm-hmm. 20, you go, okay, now what? Yeah. So in 21, he's showing them, this is what life is going to be for you. Now that mm. I've done this, you are my disciples. Here's what you're going to do and be. And yeah. I think it's just a follow-up now. Yeah. You know, that relationship with them, mm-hmm. reinforcing his love for them. And yeah. Here's what you're to do. Yeah, because Jesus had fed them as his sheep, and now he's, he commissions Peter, feed my lambs, feed my sheep, tend, tend the sheep. That's the, going to be their mission now. So, yeah, good. Any other thoughts on... I was thinking about breakfast on the beach with Christ. Yeah. And it just validates that he physically, in docetism, I think it was in the yeah. religions, you know, that he just was a spirit, he wasn't a person. Right. And then even after he died, he came back and he's having breakfast with them. I mean, that. Yeah. not only would that be super comforting to them, I mean, but at the same time, ghosts don't cook breakfast anymore. <laughs> That's right, you know, yeah. He was real, he was a person. Yeah. And you see, you see that, this is John's gospel. Think about John's other writings in the New Testament. We just went through 1 John with um, John O'Rourke. And remember the opening, the opening lines of 1 John says what? That which was from the beginning, which we have seen, which we have heard, which we have touched. I'm sorry? And our hands have handled, he's saying. And he, what else is he saying there? Anyone who says that Jesus didn't come in the flesh is what? A liar and antichrist it's the one place people are always like where's the word you know what is the antichrist i'm like an antichrist in the bible is someone who denied the incarnation of, of god the son in a real body that was so important to to john and think about remember the opening and the prologue of john the the first verse in the beginning was the word the word was with god and the word was god and then verse 14 the word became flesh that word sarks like he became physical a real 
person. And that's why you have all this emphasis on, like, look, touch me. See the, the, the marks, the side, the, the hole in my side. And he was really there. He ate breakfast. He, all, all of that. That was really important to John. And it should be really important to us, too. Good, very good. What else? Any other thoughts? I think it also emphasizes that he is, it's the same Jesus that was there before because you see all those parallels back to like the first time he met them. Yeah. And, and everything that's happened up to this point already. Yeah. That's a really important point. Because why is that so important that Jesus is raised in the same body that he died in? Why is that so important? It sets the pattern for us. Right. It's not going to be someone else's body. It's going, to, it's going to be literally me. It's going to be like my body is going to come back to life from the grave. With all our problems. With all the issues. That's right. The other thing is the way he ministered to Peter. Peter had epic fail yeah. in his denials. Mm-hmm. But Jesus went out of his way to minister to Peter. Yeah. Isn't that encouraging? Like, Because how many of us have had epic fails ourselves? Okay. And, you know, I've heard me kind of humor. It's somewhat humorous, but it's also, you, all, you feel for him. You know, Peter, when he was in church or with the Christian people, when the, as the gospels start to be written, it's like, do we have to read that chapter again? Um, you can imagine the new believers like Peter standing over there and they read about his denial. And he's, he called down divine curses and swore oaths. I do not know the man. It must have been like, is that you? Like, yes, that was me. <laughs> Yeah, wouldn't that be kind of like hard? Like you're, the worst things you've ever done are chronicled in Holy Scripture forever. <laughs> like, and yet, that's also the, the people of Israel, their, their faults are right there on full display. I mean, David, I mean, David's like the worst things he ever did is right there in Scripture. So, you know, why, why do we try to like act like we're, we've got it all together and we're all that? You know, we, we just aren't. So. But yeah, Peter got special pastoral care from and was restored and was still greatly used even though he failed. Yes, sir? I was going to make another point. Um, uh, There would be fishers of men like we see here. And Christ, as we see, is the one that enables them to to, to provide for them. Right. We see that here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, he's the one that's going to give the 153 converts. Or maybe that's how many members you're supposed to have in every church or something. 153. <laughs> yeah. Yes, sir. I'm not sure if you'll have the time, but could you explain the Greek text, the different words for love and the, the Greek text? Phileo, ph- agapao, all that yeah, stuff. People have made a big deal. Because when he, when he asked the question, see the questions there, um, verse 15. Yes, Lord, you know that I... Uh, love you. I can't recall. I don't have the Greek in front of me here, but one of one of them's phileo, which is typically seen as more of a friendship kind of love, and the other another one's agapao, which is more of the self giving agape kind of love. He asks. He uses the different verbs when he's asking him those questions. But the fact the fact is the the word phileo and the word agapao they they really have a very similar semantic domain. They they overlap quite a bit. So there really isn't probably a whole lot being said there. He's not really saying. Do you love me as a friend? Do you love me as this or really that? <laughs> yeah, he kind of is hit, hitting all, all bases to kind of like, you need to love me with the totality of who you are in every way. Like, synonyms talks about agapao is a love you can have for a complete stranger. Hmm. But the phileo is a, is a love that's more intimate. 
Right, right. We're close friends, family members. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Even even when we we talk about filial o- obedience or like filial love, that's family love. Whereas agape is the, is the self giving love, like God loves the world in, in that way. But we but, can have that love for a missionary we've never met. Right, you can have that kind of love, but they're not part of your family, like your immediate family, right? Mm-hmm. So he's saying, are you are we are we family? Do you love me in, in every way? Um, you can love someone, but good question. Okay, any other thoughts or comments? Yes, sir. I just had a question back mm-hmm. in 20. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe there's something about the particular word believed that the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, he saw, and believed. Mm-hmm. And so I'd taken that to mean, okay, they believe he isn't there. Because it says, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. So I was thinking that meant that they didn't yet understand that he was resurrected, but just that they believed, yep, the body is indeed gone. <laughs> Saw and, be- and be- believe what Mary reported to them. Yeah, that's probably, you're probably right. That's probably better. I didn't know if there was something about the word believed that would make us think that they were. No, or that just John. Believed, yeah, that's a good point, because they did not know that it says they, not just that um, Peter did not, but that they did not know the scripture yet that he must rise from the dead. So yeah, yeah, they believed what Mary reported. Yeah, he's gone. So good question, good point. Do you think there's any significance that the first witness was a woman? I've heard commentators talk about her testimony would not be any value in court. Um. Only that it just breathes real history, like it's not. There's nothing being stacked in favor of, um, of the disciples' story. It, it's it's how it actually happened. So, now they they were all eyewitnesses, but she was the first one there. She was she was definitely the first one that saw him after he was alive. But it does have resemblance to the beginning from shepherds. Or the ones to receive because yeah. I don't think shepherds, their testimony wasn't worth anything either. No, it yeah. wasn't. So in both cases, God it's is showing favor to those whom the world doesn't care much for. Yeah. That's interesting. God, God especially identifies with, the, the, with people that are not held in high esteem by mankind. So, which is probably why most of us are believers. Because <laughs> we're nobodies, but I mean, isn't that what he says? That to, I mean, even what was it? I think it was. It might have been Roland Bainton. We had to read a little book called Early Christianity when I was in seminary, and Roland Bainton has a chapter in there called "A Religion for Losers," because <laughs> like it was like slaves and prostitutes, tax collectors. Like it was the real dregs of society. And who who were the guys that ran around preaching it? A bunch of backwoods, uneducated Galilean fishermen. You know, the first big you know mind that really is is part of this is who? Paul. Say so, you now, Paul. Paul is definitely you know an intellectual giant of a man. But prior to that, it's it's a bunch of nobodies from nowhere. And even their enemies recognized that and said, "Who who are these guys? They're they're uneducated men from you know Galilee." which is not, not the place to be. 
So. It's not the who, it's the message. That's right. It's, it's the power of God in, in that. And even, even Paul said that. Paul's physical bodily presence, he himself admits it. And he wasn't, and tradition tells us he was not an imposing physical you know, presence either. Um, but he, he, I think, liked that. He said, so your confidence is not going to be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. It's going to be in the gospel and the message, not the person that delivers it. How what? How Jesus came into the world, you know. He was yeah. Lowly, born in a manger, son of a carpenter. Yeah. From Nazareth. Uh, yeah, from some backwater town. You know. Yeah, remember the early in John one? It's like they can said we come out Nazareth. Yeah, can anything like what? It's like can anything good come out of Bluntville? Like, where is that? <laughs> or is it when we first got here, I'm like, what's Bluntville? And Roger's like, it's pronounced Bluntville, you Yankee idiot. <laughs> but, but yeah, okay. Yeah, remember um, 1 Corinthians, not many mighty, not many noble, not many of the intelligentsia, you know, were, were called. So, okay, any other thoughts or comments? Uh, yes, sir. I'm not sure. I was thinking about doing the pastoral letters. You guys want to read First, Second Timothy, and Titus, or is there anything else, anything in particular that is really outside of Leviticus? Galatians. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. Galatians. Galatians. You want to read Galatians? We could go through Second and Third John. Second and Third John. We've gone through First John. Okay. John <clears throat> okay. Do a couple of quick sessions on those. Yeah. Yeah. Those are those are. Um, Packed full of important stuff. Say what? I can tell you who he isn't. In, in every century since the apostles died, people keep getting that wrong. Um, okay, well, why don't we we'll, we'll knock off there and uh, thank you guys for your faithfulness. I have thoroughly enjoyed interacting with you all and, and hearing your comments and. Um, doing these kind of just read-throughs. I just love doing this. I enjoy it so much. So thank you for coming. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for this time to be with Christian brothers and sisters. And what a blessing to rejoice in what the Word teaches us and and says to us. And uh, I'm so thankful to you that Jesus is alive. He's still alive even now at your right hand. And we thank you that we have the eyewitness testimony that you have preserved and protected and given to us in our Bibles. May we treasure these words truly and and love them uh, with all of our heart and rely upon their promises as we go through the the days of blessing and the the trials that you have ordained for us to cross through. And we just thank you so much for the freeness of your grace. We thank you for uh, the the gospel and that Christ has uh, achieved eternal life by his suffering and death, by his righteousness that is given to us as a pure gift by faith in him alone. And uh, we pray you would help us to be motivated more and more Uh, to be godly, to be holy by our thankfulness to you for um, your forgiveness and for the love that you showed to us. We thank you for Peter, how although he failed and and sinned, uh, that Jesus never let go of him and and cared for him, restored him, and empowered him uh, just as you do all of us. Lord, help us to remember how gracious and how patient you really are um, and to remember that as we saw it with Peter here. Um, bless us as we move on to something new and I pray that it would be a blessing to all who come here and I just thank you so much for our church family. Thank you that those who have been sick are doing better and we pray that those that are are still sick would would heal up from their sicknesses. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.